are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. James 1. I hope you are enjoying this study as much as I am. Um, I'm often reminded when I'm in any book, uh, but particularly this one, that there is really no sense in which, as a preacher of the word, that you're able to fully know all that you're getting into when you start off in a book study. You, you think you have an idea, you get down the road, and then you just, you're just like, there's, there's no way I could have known that this was, this was coming down the, the tracks. Um, and, it's, and it's a beautiful reminder um, of how the word works in our lives and how the spirit uses the word to continue to shape us transform us and ultimately to kill us and make us alive that is what the word is at work to do to render you dead in your trespasses and sins and then to remind you in jesus you have been raised to new life and i pray that god's word will work in that way again tonight we have been kind of in a series here a little sequence of verses james isn't always as cohesive uh, he can be a little bit more scatterbrained than our narrative style of Acts, which seems to be uh, subsequent, uh, goes from one little storyline to the next. James and his letter feels a little bit more hit and miss, a little bit more irregular, but we are in a stretch of verses that is pretty consistent, that's kind of going along the same thread. So tonight we are continuing in the same line of thinking in James's mind. So we're able to kind of do a little bit of review and a little bit of forecasting, and it'll, it'll end up being consistent. But last week, really the past two weeks, we've been looking at the reality that James's ultimate diagnosis, uh, which is really meaningful, you need a good diagnosis. If, if I can say it this way, you need a true diagnosis what you don't need is a false one. That's not helpful for you in any way. Even if the truth hurts, it's good to know the truth. Then you know what you're facing. Because then with a good diagnosis, hopefully, maybe there's a good cure out there. James helps us to realize that our biggest problems are not outside of us. They're not the things out there. They're not the people out there. They're not the evil and things out there, the biggest problem that we face is actually right here in our own hearts. We are tempted. Temptation in an ultimate sense is this reality that we are drawn away from God by our own lusts and enticed. And when we are drawn away from God by our own lustful hearts or the desires that our hearts want, when they are fully grown and fully conceived and the fruit that they produce in our lives is death. And if you just want an example of that, just look through any history textbook 
and you will find a perfect example of what humanity looks like when we are drawn away by our own lusts and entice and the fruit of that reality. And certainly our Bible tells that grand story that Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden were drawn away not by something greater, not even merely by something outside of them. They wanted something inside of them that they felt like they didn't have. And so they reached out for fruit, thinking that would be the thing to save them, but their desires and their temptation was ultimately on the inside. And that sin has brought forth death, and we have certainly been bearing the fruits of that reality for a long time. But it's not just Adam and Eve's consequence, it's your consequence and my consequence as well. That's the proper diagnosis. Last week, we took a good long look at the proper cure. And the proper cure is that God in his supreme graciousness has given us his word. And so we looked at these three realities as part of this understanding of who God is and what he has done or what he has given to us that actually provides the perfect cure, the perfect remedy to our problem. We've been told, and even in Christian circles, that the greatest problem is outside of us and the greatest solution is inside you, right? Yes, there's bad people. Yes, there's bad things out there. But if you can do what you can do, and if you can muster up enough strength, and if you can fix all your internal problems, then you can solve your... I realize that's not quite working, and that's not James's diagnosis. James actually reverses it. The biggest problem you have is inside your heart. And the greatest solution, wonderfully, graciously, miraculously, actually exists outside of you and is given to you freely with no charge, with no conditions, with no strings attached in the person and the work of Jesus. And we saw last week very clearly that God is an unobligated giver. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. From God, who is the unchanging creator. He's the father of lights. He's the one who created everything, including the solar system and all the things there. But he also is the source of these things. And there is no shadow or variation due to change. In other words, he's not the thing that's actually casting the shadow. He's the light source that causes light to change based on other people, other changing things around it. He's the source of the light. Things revolve around him, in other words. He doesn't revolve around us. And also, most importantly, the most important thing he's trying to give to you or to say to you or to create in you is brand new life, eternal life. He says this in verse 18, of his own will, of his own will. Nothing prompted him, nothing moved him, nothing conditionalized him, nothing moved his heart out of his own being, his graciousness, his love, his desire for you, which is why he created you in the first place. He set his love on you to redeem you. And he set everything in motion in the person and work of Jesus to freely, unconditionally, give you what you could never gain for yourself. And that is a right standing before God, a new regenerated heart that actually pulses with brand new desires. Yes, we still have the old man clinging to us and the flesh clings on and there's still some lingering desires. But also you feel a new heartbeat pulsing within you through the spirit. And this came about on account of the word. 
the word of the gospel, the free gift of God in the gospel, revived your heart. And so now there are God-given desires. And because of that desire, you learn from the Spirit in Galatians 5, that there's also God-given fruit along with it. So new things are happening. A new redemption is taking place in the middle of God's people's lives. And though it's mixed, it's a mixed bag of brokenness and resurrection, this is the new reality for the Christian. But this is also the clarity of the cure. God is at work to freely, graciously, unconditionally, extremely provide grace where there was death, where there was rejection, where there was hatred against him. He has loved you even greater than what we could sin against him. So this is where we pick up our text. We've heard the diagnosis. We've heard the cure. Now we're going to see a little bit of an ethical or a fruit-filled response to how this might impact our living. But James is ultimately going to center still on the reality that ultimately before we do anything— with a heart of pure religion, ultimately, the pure religious heart, or the heart that's firmly understanding of God and his gracious, unconditional love, will first and foremost prioritize the word above all things. So as we'll see here tonight, there's things for us to be doing, which we're all excited about. We're all like, yeah, stuff to do. But he's still going to ultimately put it under the reality that we are humbly posturing ourselves underneath the word of God. And we'll see this tonight. So this is for tonight. Pure religion is posturing yourself humbly under the word of God. The same word that has redeemed you, brought you forth, gave you a new heart, gave you a new redemption. This same word is something that we continually go back to and humble ourselves under and receive with open, empty hands. With nothing in our hands, we simply go back to the word that God has already given. So tonight, we are in verses 19 through 21. We'll read our passage here tonight. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted words which is able to save your souls. Pure religion is posturing yourself under the word of God. I love how James starts our passage tonight with another quick little clap, another quick little, hey, 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 pay attention. It's like I, like, I, like I do with my kids. Sometimes you don't often know how words get across, and so you end up like, like either grabbing them by the face, kind of like a, like a horse, and like, like, listen, 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 dial in. And James has done this not just once, but he's done this now twice. In verse 19, he looks at us and says, know this. Hey, hey, hey. know this. My beloved brothers, pay attention. This is on the heels of verse 16 when he says, do not be deceived. Almost to imply the reality that like, hey, you're, you're going, if you don't listen to what I'm saying, if you don't bend into what I'm saying, it's going to trick you. Life is going to trick you. Your heart's going to trick you. Don't be deceived. Don't, don't miss this. And it's now he's in verse 19. It's like, here, 
All right, here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to, to really understand. This, this reality, take note of this, your translation might say, or be intimately acquainted with this reality. Notice how also says he, he said he's speaking to his beloved brothers. Oftentimes James gets a little bad rap because he's a little testy with assurance of salvation, right? He's a little bit push you back on your own. Are you doing enough? Are, are you doing this? Are you sure? James is actually ultimately not writing to do that. He's not writing to unsettle your faith. He's actually trying to settle you. And this is another one of those little hint drops of like, I'm writing to you because I'm affirming in you the reality is you are my beloved by God and beloved by me, my brothers. All right? So hang in there. Hang in there. But in light of all this, know this. Know this, brothers. Hang in there. Pay attention to what I'm saying. Let every person be quick to hear be quick to hear what might it look like for us to posture ourselves underneath the word of god what does that what does that look like and again james is is helping us to understand again the greatest solution to our problem inside of us is is outside of us and what has come to us is the word of God in Christ Jesus. That is the word of God, the truth that has brought us forth, that is allowing us in verse 18 to be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. The word outside of us of Christ has brought redemption inside, and now we are being renewed. It's the first, we are the first step of the new creation already taking place. So this word, what might it look like for us to continue to receive this word? And James says, know this, brothers, let everybody be quick to hear. Be ready. Be on edge. Put on the, sit on the front edge of your seat. Dial in and be ready to do. No, no, no. Be ready to hear. Let, let your ears do the work. Let your heart receive this word. Take, take note. It's, it's as if to say God is speaking. As we saw last week, God is giving, he's creating, he's redeeming through the word. And because that is how we were brought forth, first and foremost bodily, but also redemptively, we of all people should be professionals as Christians. We should be professional listeners. It is how, it is literally how we were made. God spoke. It is literally how we've been redeemed. We were brought forth by his word. And so we should be ready. We should be quick. Our first Christian instinct should be to hear, to listen. As James says, we should be quick to hear. And the reality opposite of that, our inability to hear, our refusal to hear. I'm just talking very generally here. I am talking about God, but I'm also talking about with others, with people. Just a posture, a, a posture of, of hearing. 
of a, of a, like a practice, a normal everyday practice of being quick to hear, both God and, and others. Our inability or our refusal to do that may indicate a kind of pride or a kind of temptation that is unknown or uh, maybe you're unaware of or you just haven't really paid attention to. If you, if you are quick to speak, quick to react, quick to give your opinion, and your first instinct isn't to, to bend in and actually, I want to hear more. I want to know more. Hey, tell me something. Help me, help me to understand. If, you, if your posture is, is reactive, maybe even if your posture is proactive, there, there could be a hint of temptation there that there's something that your heart is going for, longing for, working for, that you feel like you don't have settled in your heart. Because the reality is, if you have been created by the word of God, and then God in his wonderful, gracious, loving redemption has brought you about by the word of God, then it makes sense that your entire motion of your Christian life would be in a posture of just a willingness to hear. A willingness to receive in the ears what God has to say and what other people have to say. It's a posture of just simply being humble of being receptive. It's the posture of hearing. Paul reminds us in Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing. You can't be a Christian if you can't hear. If, you're, if your heart isn't under a posture of hearing the word of God, of taking the word of God and bringing it into the level of your heart to understand it, to grasp it, to arrange yourself underneath it. You can't have faith. You can't trust it. You're working. You're going. You're moving. You're meriting. But a heart of faith is able to hear and able to receive. What is your, what is your posture to the word? And I, I dare even say that this actually comes out a lot in your normal, everyday Bible reading. You can, you, can, you can actually go to, to your Bible reading and not, not go to hear, but go to make demands of the Word of God. Go to, go to speak almost into existence what you would like to hear or what you would like for God to say. And th- this, this isn't done on purpose. I'm not saying it, it's done on purpose, but, but maybe, this is, maybe this is something for, for you to, to really consider. Who, who is really doing the reading in your Bible reading? Is the, is the Bible doing its work to read you? Or are you reading your Bible? Does that make sense? Does that, does that make sense? Who, who's doing the interpreting? Who's doing the speaking? Are you going to your Bible and are you doing the interpretation? Are you, are you doing all that work? Or are you letting the Bible interpret you? Tell you your story? Tell you the reality about yourself. The Bible's to speak its word to you. I oftentimes have gone to the Bible looking for something. On on the way to a conclusion or on the way to something I need to say or something I need to feel or something I need in my heart. 
And oftentimes I've come up short and I've wondered, what's the disconnect? Could it possibly be that you haven't come as simply a, a hearer? Take, take my heart and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Whatever, whatever it is, say what you want to say. Speak to me, whatever you want to say. Even how we interpret the scriptures or read the scriptures can inflect a reality of a posture that's willing to hear or willing to speak. Because of our diagnosis under the word, we should be very quick to listen to God and to listen to others. What possibly, if, the di- if James's diagnosis is true, if the problem lies within my heart, if that's, if that's the issue, of my issue, but also humanity's issue, is, is all of our hearts, what possibly, apart from the word of God, would I ever have to offer you that's of any significance or everlasting value? I feel like everything I said, I would say at that moment would just be this constant transfer of death. We would give each other wisdom unto death. We would just kill each other with our man-made ideas and whims and desires and the latest trending thought. But unless it's the word of God that actually creates and then recreates what's broken and dead, what would I ever have to offer you? And what would you have ever to offer me? Except just more compounding sin, temptation, and death. It wouldn't, wouldn't help. Wouldn't, wouldn't revive the soul. Wouldn't raise the dead. And that's what's needed. So because of that diagnosis, we should be very quick to hear. Very quick to hear. People are used by God to speak into our lives. And this is an, ultimately re- an ultimate reality. We as Christians should, should know this. God has put people into our lives, arranged and sovereignly ordained people to be in and of our lives. Thankfully, even Christian brothers and sisters into our lives to speak the gospel into our lives. And so that always allows us to take the posture of a learner. Because of my own heart condition, I can always learn from somebody else. I can always learn from some other believer who has some uh, advice to share about walking in the Christian life and Christian experience or walking with Jesus or going through suffering. I can always arrange my heart underneath them. There's some sort of spirit-given gift given to them that I can learn from and come around and say, hey, help me understand. How did, how did you come to that conclusion? Or how, do you, how are you good at that? It seems natural to you. Help me, help me know. Help me learn. It allows us to be a learner. Be quick, quick to hear. Not putting this up. Sorry, ready to hear. Number two, there's a second thing that I think we can do that helps us to be in a posture of arranging ourselves underneath God's word. And second is willing to not be heard. A willing to not be heard. Let every person be quick to hear Slow to speak. Slow to speak. Uh, is Marcy Reagan here? No. But you guys, you guys can probably all finish it. If you're, if you're teachers, especially, if your mouth's open, what is it? Your ears are not right. If your mouth's open, your ears are not right. That's a good old teacher phrase. Am I the only one who's, who's heard that? Maybe. That was directed at me way too many times. <laughs> that's, probably, that's probably what it is. 
If your mouth's open, your ears are not. You can't, you can't learn and speak at the same time. can't do it. You can't be a hearer. You can't be a good hearer if you're always talking. If you're always the one opening your mouth. Can't, can't really be that your ears are working too well. Be slow to speak. This seems extremely countercultural. If you think about it, this seems extremely countercultural. Be the last one to open your mouth. Be the last one to give your opinion. Be the last one to have your voice heard. As I was studying this, I I was trying to wrap my mind and my heart around just how anti-American, anti-cultural this currently is in our space. That we would willingly, freely, and again, this... This, this kind of takes that, that gospel-rooted free inhibition to, to simply just be last to speak. That, that's, what, that's what James is encouraging here. He's not saying, shut up. He's not just being rude here. He's saying there's something about the realities of the gospel that, that frees your heart to be the last in line when it comes to giving your opinion. And there's something, there's something good news about that. There's something blessed about that. And certainly, if you're basically to get off Twitter for the rest of your days, we would all applaud that and say, yeah, that's a good thing. Why? Because you're probably like at that moment doing your best to get the last in line to speak your opinion. That's probably what that means. That would be encouraging for you. That'd be good for you. Of course, this is not talking about just the unalienable rights of people to have their voice and opinion heard. James isn't isn't talking about that. Again, he's talking about some sort of gospel-rooted energy that frees you up to say, or to not say anything at all. To, to, to not feel like there's some sort of demand where you have to be heard. And I think it's going to come out a little bit in the next little statement. But I think ultimately what James is starting to say here, he's starting to articulate to us here, is don't trust your heart. Don't trust your heart. There's a reality, there's a, a deep connection between your mouth and your heart. Jesus helps articulate this in, in Matthew 12. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He also articulated this in, in Mark chapter 7. We talked about it. The impurity, the sin, it comes out from your heart, and it comes out of various different ways in our human expression of temptation. But Jesus ultimately ended up articulating, and James will go on in chapter 3 to articulate, there is a connection between the heart and the mouth. And when you are forced or impulsive about opening your mouth, there's something impulsive or forcible about your heart going on at that moment. Your heart is demanding to be heard. Your heart is responding to a condition that feels like it's unmet. And so your mouth is wide open to speak. So he's actually saying, don't trust your heart. When your mouth wants to open, be on guard because your heart is right there demonstrating itself, showing something about your heart that's going on that you feel like is true. Again, James 3 would have a lot to say about what happens when we speak in a way that is just out of the abundance of the sinful heart and flesh. He says it's a world of evil, a fire that is set ablaze by hell. 
the tongue can do a great amount of damage. And the reality is it's not so much the tongue that's the problem, it's the heart. When you speak, when you are wanting to speak and give your opinion and feel like that's what you have to do in order to feel right, justified, complete, satisfied, heard, known, loved, be very careful that your heart isn't being uh, uh, tempted and lured away by its own desires. The love that you long for, the satisfaction that you long for, the affirmation, the approval you long for, the right standingness, the rightness that you long for is found in Jesus, given to you by grace, not by what you're able to do, not by your right opinions, not by your ability to orate and perfectly construct a well-constructed argument. You're allowed to take a last-line space when it comes to being heard. You're allowed to. You're free to do that because of what you've been given in Christ. He also says, be slow to anger. Check your passion. Check your passion. It's kind of funny. As I was studying this, I was like, wait a second. This phrase appears all over, especially the Old Testament. God is actually rendered slow to anger. And I did some digging into that. Well, it turns out that it's not the exact same fit because God actually has something to be angry about. And this is, this is a little bit of the, of the difference. When God is slow to anger, he is slow in his just wrath. The phrase slow to anger uh, or steadfast or, or patient is actually the idea of being long-nosed. And this is always a, an illustration that's stuck up. It's not an illustration, it's the root word. Um, but it's the idea of being long-nosed. And you're like, that sounds silly, until you remember Elmer Fudd. And then it all makes sense. Because you remember when like Elmer Fudd would get so mad at Bugs Bunny, and then he would get red, and he would like fill up like a little like thermometer and get red, 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 red. You guys remember that? And he gets so mad, and then like steam's coming out of his nose. The idea that God is long-nosed means it takes him a long time to get hot. It takes him a little bit extra long to get angry, to get mad. He's more patient. He has a longer nose than you and I do. Doesn't mean he's like Pinocchio. It's not. It's not that. It's the other. It's the other way. Takes him, takes him longer to fill up with anger. He's patient. But again, God actually has something to be angry about. That's talking about very specifically the wrath of God against our sin. We can say it this way. It's the just wrath of God against our sin. And God wouldn't be good if he wasn't just. If he never put to death the evil that has brought us death, he would never be good. He might be right, but he might never be good. But if he's going to claim to be good, then he has to deal with, with evil. He has to do away with sin. For us, James isn't really talking about that when he asks us to be slow to anger. He's actually talking about, and this is a great word got from a commentary, but it's this idea of our petty passion. Our petty passion. And boy, howdy, that resonated because I feel like our world is just filled with petty passion. Pettiness. Like it doesn't matter. Stuff that we get angry about, I'm like, this hasn't existed for however long this earth has been alive, all of a sudden we're dealing with this issue. And how long is it going to be before it's gone? A month? And then the new trend, new political swirl is going to come up and just tornado that away. And it's going to be, it's going to be gone. The new little, uh, this is, and this is totally a Christian problem, but the new little uh, rift in theological trends that we pick on each other about and, and like to riff on with another and separate and cast a vision over just on petty things. We get so passionate about 
Like, guys, this keeps coming up in, in church history. Why are we talking about this again? I thought we solved this issue. Both are orthodox positions. We can move on, embrace each other. It's going to inhibit how we worship sometimes. Okay, that's fine. But I love you. I care for you. I'm not going to pick on you. I'm going to celebrate what God's doing in your life. James is saying, stop it with the petty passion. Stop it with the stupid stuff. Move on. Focus on the things that actually matter. For the anger, listen to this phrase from James, for the petty passion of man, for the anger of man, does not produce the righteousness of God. Oh, if we would just have an awareness of that reality, because don't we feel justified whenever we're hot about something, politically, religiously, interpersonally with one another, in our marriage relationships, whatever it is, even with one another, you know, she said that. Well, I can't believe she said that because I'm saying this. None of that which we actually think is helpful, none of that produces the righteousness of God. It's not doing any of that. It's not doing anything that we think it's doing. It's actually doing the exact opposite. In one sense, we could say it's incurring the wrath of God. It's bringing on the wrath of God. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming, as 1 Corinthians says. But here we are, thinking we're doing something right. My friends, be slow to anger. Be, be slow with this petty passion stuff. Be a little bit more flexible. Be a little bit more tolerant. And I'm, what I'm not saying is give up ground. I don't think you have to give up ground in your own conscience. I don't think you have to give up ground theologically to do that or politically to do that. I think it just comes from a posture of understanding that your greatest priority, your greatest gift, your greatest sense of righteousness, your greatest sense of security comes from the gospel, not that thing. And so you're allowed to be flexible. You're allowed to give a little bit of space. I'm not telling you to change your opinion. I'm not telling you to go against your conscience. But I am saying, I think you're allowed to be generous, especially when there are bigger things that actually do the work of saving. There are bigger things that actually do the work of saving your soul and satisfying your soul. So I think you can give yourself over to that. None of these things actually accomplish the righteousness of God that we think. Fourth, reject your old ways. He says in verse 21, therefore, as if in step with the reality or in step with the flow of thought, in light of all of this, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. I love the uh, CSB translation, actually a little bit better here. Therefore, ridding yourselves or putting off of yourselves all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent. I think that is just James' categorical way of saying all of the stinking garbage that fills your old way of life, just throw it away. Just cast it off. What, whatever it is, if you were giving yourself, if, if there were things that you were giving yourself that didn't allow you to be slow or quick to hear, but forced you to be quick to anger, that filled you with petty passion, throw it in the garbage. Put it away. Remove it from your life. Take it out of your life. Quit acting like that's an actual priority for you. What do you have to do? This reminds me of so many of Jesus' words about this kind of radicalness when it comes to following Jesus. That there's actually something that's tempting you, causing you to, to be tempted away from God himself. What do you have to do in order to get rid of that? Do you have to amputate your arm? Well, that's actually better that you would amputate your arm than to spend the rest of your days in hell. 
Better to have your, in, your, your one armless body in heaven than to spend the rest of your eternity in hell. It's, it's, it's not worth it. What do you have to do? This is like what James is saying. Put it off. Remove from yourself. Cast it aside. What, what is it that rivals Jesus? In your heart. I've got, I've got a couple things that, that, I'm, that I'm thinking of that I'm strongly considering. What would it mean for me to cast this stuff off? To move this stuff off as ways that actually make me upset, make me mad. That actually don't accomplish what I think it's accomplishing in terms of the righteousness of God. How can I set my heart fully on the gospel and not simply trust my own heart and give myself over to petty passions? Remove all of the, the what, is it, what does it say, evil that is so prevalent. And I think that speaks to any day. I think we all, maybe in different generations and different times in history, struggle with prevalent evil in different ways. And James is saying, whatever that is, cast it off. Move it, move it off. Get rid of it. Four, a fifth, excuse me, fifth. Continue to embrace the gospel. And of course, James has to finish this off. If there's going to be a put off, then there's got to be a put on, right? There's got to be a remove, then we've got to replace. And thankfully, graciously, God has given us something to replace it with, which is why James says what he says. Get rid of it. Why? So that you can have the real stuff. So you can lay hold of the real realities the things that actually get to work to save. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. It actually does what you want it to do. Actually, that's what you want. He says receive with meekness. Meekness is a weird word. It it isn't weakness, right? We've heard that old like Sunday school answer, meekness isn't weakness. But we don't know what it is, right? I've always heard it described as strength under pressure or strength under control. Um, it's kind of like when uh, my wife has a piano and in our, in our house. We've moved a gazillion times, and so we've strategically had to think about how we can move the piano through a variety of different stages of our, of our lives. And I'm always reminded of how much meekness goes into moving a piano because the reality is you can't move my wife's piano like you can move her giant love sack, which is like a giant beanbag that's bigger than me. Um, you can throw that anywhere. You can stuff that. You can punch that anywhere. You can fit that anywhere. You can't, you can't do that with her piano. Her piano costs more than I do. So you have to have meekness. You need a bunch of big dudes who have big, soft hearts. That's what you need. You need meek dudes who can pick up that piano and set it down as if it's like a pillow. That's meekness. Receive with meekness the implanted word. This idea of implanted, it's a little tricky. Uh, has the idea, idea of like innate, something that's innate in you, which is a little strange, maybe theologically confusing, because you're like, wait, the word of God isn't innate. That's what James has been saying all along. It was outside of us, and it came in. And yes, that's, that's true. I think what James is actually alluding to is some new covenant realities that since we have the Spirit, because we are brothers in Christ, the Word of God actually is set in our hearts as the Spirit ministers. The Word of God sticks there. The Word of God abides there and lives there. 
And he calls this the implanted word, the word that was implanted and kind of lives and grows and bears fruit among us. You can see Colossians 1 if you need an example of Paul talking about this reality. The word of God that's implanted and it bears fruit and it grows. It does the work. He says, receive with with meekness. And again, he's talking to believers uh, and churchgoers here. He says, again, receive with meekness the word that you've already received. Receive yet again. Be humble enough. Be careful enough, be big-hearted enough to receive again the word that has already been implanted. And understand that the gospel from start to finish, the gospel both past, present, and future, both when Jesus actually accomplished the realities of the gospel to his promise right here and now in this very moment, and then tomorrow, because of your own sin, when you need to embrace the gospel again, that that word of God is able to save your soul's for all of eternity. It's actually able to do the job. Or as Paul would say, it's the power of God unto salvation. It has that kind of oomph, that kind of power to do. The gospel is what is at work to do that. So embrace the gospel again. We're going to keep going in James, and he's going to talk about very clearly what it means to do the word. But I love how James yet again reinforces in our hearts and minds the necessity of the posture to come to the word of God with empty hands, to allow God to do the work of the word on your heart first. There's lots of doing, there's lots of action to be done. We're going to continue to see that. But first and foremost, the posture of somebody who embraces the gospel is a posture of humility with empty hands, ready to receive again what they've already received. So I want to encourage us yet again to receive the word. Put your heart humbly underneath the word of God. Allow it to do its reviving work in you. I also want to encourage you, if you are going to speak as Christians, there really is only one thing to speak, isn't there? And this is it. And this is, this is actually the area where I would encourage you, and the rest of the scripture is going to be very clear about opening up your mouth to actually get around to speaking this. If you're going to speak about anything, if you're going to be quick to launch into some sort of opinion, it better be the gospel. Because I forget it all the time, don't I? So God is, uses, uses us as agents not to speak about our petty passions, but to actually speak and proclaim the gospels in ways that we don't expect. I expect to hear your petty passion. That's what I hear all the time. And you expect to hear my petty passion. That's what you probably hear way too much of. But what I need to hear and what I'm not expecting always to hear is, hey, you're forgiven. I know that pain. Jesus is at work to redeem that. One day he will make all things untrue, true. Believe in him, trust in him. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word, and I pray that you would keep us humble to receive it. The word that you have implanted into our hearts continue to work again for the fruit of righteousness that actually does the work of saving. Pray that you would revive our souls, Give us the joy of our salvation. Allow us to lean in to the realities of the gospel yet again. Jesus, thank you for suffering in our place, for taking our sin, taking our shame and our guilt on yourself, and giving us the blessings of eternal life and a right standing before the Father. We love you, we trust you, and we give ourselves yet again to you. We pray these things through him. Amen.